encourage you to take a copy of the Word of God and open this morning to John chapter 11. If you do not have your Bible with you, you should find one in a seat or nearby under the on the rack or maybe in the seat itself. But please take a word of a word of God and let's open it to John chapter 11. May we hear God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard, heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been uh, in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to Him, Yes, Lord. I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have you laid Him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that You always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that You sent me. When He had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. May God be pleased to bless His Word and let His people say, Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this day, for marking an occasion for the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, the Christ who's come into the world, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank You for Your Word, for this record of this historical event that took place almost 2,000 years ago in in the town of Bethany. And I pray, Lord, that even though the story, it may be all that it may ever be new in our minds of the resurrection and the promise of the resurrection, 
and the victory of Christ over, over sin and death in the grave. Lord, bless Your Word. Send it forth mightily among the people. May we rejoice in You. May our hope, our confidence, our all in all be found in You, Lord Jesus. I ask this in Your blessed and holy name and for Your cause. Amen. John chapter 11 is, of course, a remarkable chapter. It records the sickness and the death and the burial of a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ. It records for us how believers respond to sickness and also to death. It records a believer's hope even in the throes of sickness. And it records the believer's pain and loss in death. And yet, even there, their hope in Christ. It records the response of Jesus to the sickness of His friend Lazarus and to His death. How did Jesus Himself respond to this sickness and this death? And most startling, even though we use the word and we've used it frequently today already, most startling, uh, it records the resurrection of a dead man. The man who had died came out. That is what the Word of God declares. Now, there's a good number in our congregation today. We're thankful to see everyone present as we celebrate this Resurrection Sunday, but I can say with all safety, without any fear of being contradicted, there is not a single soul here who has ever seen a resurrection. Not a one of us. When someone dies, they stay dead. It doesn't matter how great they were, what prior preparations they may have made, how loved they were, how young they were, how old they may have been. It does not matter how important, it doesn't matter, any of this doesn't matter, the dead remain dead. We can't prevent death. I don't know if it's so much in the news anymore, but it used to be some years ago you would hear a lot about cryogenics, about someone that was very famous and wealthy that would uh, know they're facing death and they would have their body frozen in anticipation of having that body resuscitated at some future date when science makes progress and we can conquer whatever uh, disease it may, they may have died from. But we can't prevent death. Faith will not prevent death. There are many believers here and that will not prevent my physical death save the Lord Jesus Christ come back prior. Medicine will not prevent it. Technology will not prevent it. You cannot, I cannot, stop or reverse death. Death. The dead remain dead. And all hope for life ends at death. When someone close dies, we don't expect them to see them at lunch tomorrow or make some lunch date with them in a week or two because the dead stay dead. You haven't seen a resurrection. I haven't seen a resurrection. 
In fact, we can say that the army of the dead is much greater than that of the living. It is estimated that there have been 106 billion souls upon this earth. 106 billion, that's an estimate. But of that great number, only 6% are alive today. And we talk about the earth being more populated now than ever before. But of that 106 billion, only 6% are drawing breath today. The other 94% are dead. God told Adam, Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And God tells us all in Romans 5.12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all. Spread to all because all sinned. All have sinned. I have sinned. You have sinned. All have sinned. Our family, our children, our grandchildren, our spouses, our loved ones have sinned. All eight billion of us that are on the earth today have sinned, have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, death awaits us. Humanity's great enemy is death. Pastor Tyler mentioned it. I hate it. It is no friend of mine. It's not a companion. It's not something that I um, glory in. It is an enemy. Many of us here have witnessed the ravages of death and the soul's crunching effects of it when it comes and takes someone you love. Every one of us here are destined to die. We have an appointment. You can't break it. You can't cancel it. You can't call up and reset it. And we all here know that the dead remain dead. We've never witnessed a resurrection. Yet, the resurrection from the dead is central in and to Christianity. I read again that you heard read a few moments ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, now, I don't know everyone here. don't know your particular life view or theology or lack thereof. But if you reject the idea, the reality, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, basically, in effect, you are rejecting and denying the resurrection of the dead. How can some of you here say there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, I've never seen one. Well, honestly, I've never seen Pluto, but I'm pretty sure it's there. 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Everything in the Word of God is fable. It's it's fiction. If Christ isn't raised, there is no Christianity. There is no hope. There is no forgiveness of sins. There's no point in repentance. There's no eternal life. If Christ is not raised, the dead do in fact forever stay dead. Every funeral I attend or take part in, I'm reminded of a fundamental truth of Christianity. That what is happening at that setting is not just a a, a people getting together and, and remembering something. Remembering somebody that died. But rather it is For a Christian, it is a declaration of the very essence of Christianity itself. Christianity is not just a set of do's and don'ts. It's promises of life and forgiveness and of the resurrection to come. And that's not like just any other religion. But none of us have ever witnessed a resurrection. But we have something more certain. We have something more certain than our individual or collective experience. We have something more certain than our senses that we rely so much on. We have the holy, holy, inspired, sufficient, infallible Scripture, the Word of God. And it declares the reality of the resurrection. Matters not that I've never seen one. And by God's providence, we all here have assembled today, and we now are summoned to hear His Word that we've read. He calls us to listen to His Word that we've read. We have the privilege of considering this great passage of the man who came, who died, the man who had died, came out. J.C. Ryle comments on that, uh, this, this really, this whole event. He says, In no part of our Lord's history do we see Him so distinctly both man and God, at the same time man in sympathy and God in power. And we do have that in this passage. We have beautifully presented to us the God-man, Jesus Christ, in this passage. So let's look at it now. In verses 1-6, through we're introduced... Uh, to Lazarus. He's identified for us. In verse 1, we're told he's the brother of Martha and Mary. In verse 2, this Mary is identified as the Mary uh, who will anoint his feet. This hasn't happened yet. If the chronology's uh, correct here, which I think it is, chapter 11, preceding 12, Mary will yet anoint his feet uh, with precious ointment and dry his feet uh, with her hair. And we're also told in verse 3 and 5 that Jesus loves this family. He loves Lazarus. He loves Mary and Martha. Uh, And when they send message to Jesus, they tell Him that, that He, Lazarus, the one that you love, is sick. He's ill. In verse 5, we're told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister. But I want you to note the words here. And this is one of the great beautiful truths and realities of the Bible. The Bible is so concise and precise and it's so 
clear. And this is just one of those places you look at and you go, wow, isn't it amazing that what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John did in this particular section. In verse uh, 3 and 5, the words of love are not the same. He uses two different phrases. We have the phrase you've often heard, many of you, agape or agape. And then we also have the phrase filio, or some form of that word, Philadelphia, brotherly love. Going going again to J.C. Ryle, he mentions that in verse 3, the word used is a lower word, he's talking about filio, such as to describe the affection between a parent and child or a husband and wife. It is the word used for kiss. In Matthew 26, 48, Mark 14, 44, Luke 22, 47. It is very noticeable that the word is carefully avoided here. That is in verse 5. John doesn't use that word. He uses another word for love. When the two sisters are mentioned, John shifts the language he's using. So he's not talking about this fondness like we think about husband, wife, children, and parents. He's talking about a much higher, a divine love, a love that is so great God sends His only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's a saving, divine love that's being described in this passage. Raul goes on to say, The Holy Ghost inspired John to abstain even from the appearance of evil. What a lesson for us. Even in this passage, so careful in the language. And today we hear the blasphemous thoughts of Jesus and His relation with different people. And right here in the very language of the Word of God, it very clearly points out that's not, what, that's not what's going on here. B.B. Warfield writes, Jesus' affection for Mary and Martha, while deep and close, had nothing in it of an amatory nature. And the change in the term avoids all possibility of such a misconception. Well, these sisters, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, in verse 3, they send a message to Jesus about their brother and his illness. And when they send this message to Jesus, they do not say to Him, Heal Him! Do something! That's not what they say. They send this message to Jesus, and they say, He whom you love is sick. That's their message. It's at your discretion. It's at your wisdom. It depends upon your will, Lord. The expectation, having said that, the expectation is that since Jesus loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and that He was able to do great things like open the eyes that has already been mentioned in the passage of blind of the blind, that when He gets this message, He will, in fact, do something that no doubt he would make haste and come and he would heal their brother or perhaps he would do it from where he is. But on the very heels of being told how he loved them, in verses 4 through 6, we're told that Jesus delays going. They sent to him, he whom you love is sick. He says this illness is not... 
for unto death, but for the glory of God. And when verse six, we're told that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. And that's tied to Christ's love for him. Well, Jesus delays going, and sometimes even now in our minds, He delays. He delays answering prayers that we sincerely offer at times, especially for those that we love. And the answer doesn't come like we think it ought to, when it ought to. His delay is returned. Sometimes we think, how long, Lord? But I would point out here as I move along and get more into this, I would point out here that every delay is with a purpose. Second Peter, and this was out of love that he delayed. Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. How patient has God been with you? And the great desire of our Lord Jesus would be that we would come to repentance. That we would know Him and profess Him. Yes, He delays. Even though His people cry out day and night, Come Lord Jesus, the Lord will come when it's His purpose in his time. Verses 7 through 16, Jesus goes to Bethany. Verse 7, Jesus states that it's time uh, to go into Judea again. He's going to Bethany. And then verse 8, the disciples balk. Now when he first got the message, he didn't go. He, He stayed two days. And then after he tells them that Lazarus has died, he says it's time to go. Now, in chapter 10, verse 31, and verse 39, and chapter 11, verse 8, you can read about the threats that are made against the life of Jesus. One of the reasons He left the area is because they were trying to stone Him. They were trying to kill Him, so He leaves that area. And now, Jesus says to His disciples, it's time to go back. Which leads you to the great testimony and statement of The Apostle Thomas in verse 16, Thomas is always remembered more as Thomas the doubter and saying, unless I do this, I'll never believe. And yet here in this passage, Thomas says, let's go with him and die with him. While the other apostles are balking because they know to go into this area is dangerous. And Thomas says, let's go. Jesus has said, let's go. And it's also, and I've mentioned this, but in verses 11 and 14, that that Jesus informs the apostles that Lazarus is dead, which probably in their minds is like, well, why do we want to go now? Why didn't we go when he was alive? But I want you to consider with me some of the timing and a couple of implications of, of Lazarus' illness and his resurrection. 
Jesus has been preparing His apostles, His disciples, for His imminent death. And in fact, when you read in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells His disciples that He's going to Jerusalem as was prophesied. And while He's there, that He will be ill-treated and that He will be crucified and that He will be buried, but He will rise again on the third day. You remember Peter's response to that? Never so, Lord. No, no. And of course, the Lord rebuked Peter in the strongest of language. But the point in, in Matthew 16 where Peter rebukes Jesus, he says to Jesus, this shall never happen to you. Well, what is this? What part of what Jesus just said to him did he hear? What part did he not hear? Jesus says, I'm going and I will be ill-treated. I will be crucified. I will be buried. But on the third day, I'll rise again. Which part did Peter not hear? What's the this? This can never happen to you. Well, obviously, the, the obvious answer would be death. Christ, you can't be crucified. How can that be? How can you be the Christ and be crucified? But it seems like his hearing was selective and he didn't even hear the last part of it. Even in our reading this morning in our earlier service, the sunrise service, we read how the language and the news of the resurrection of Christ that were brought to the apostles uh, was brought to the apostles by the women that had visited the grave. The, how their their message seemed to them as strange tales. This can't this can't be. We're just weeks away from the death of Jesus now in John eleven. And I want to read again from Ryle. He wrote. It proved, he's talking about the resurrection of Lazarus and this whole uh, scene that's set before us in John 11. It proved incontrovertibly that a person dead four days could be raised again by the divine power and that the restoration to life of a corpse was not an impossibility with God. At any rate, it paved the way for men believing the event to be not incredible. No one could say on Easter Sunday when the grace of Jesus, excuse me, when the grave of Jesus was found empty and the body of Jesus was gone, that his resurrection was an impossibility. Because just a few weeks prior, they have heard, they have witnessed, they have seen the dead man come to life who's buried, and he's buried for four days. It's not just a resuscitation. They've witnessed that. Ryle goes on to say, The mere fact a man dead four days has been restored to life within two miles of Jerusalem would silence such remarks. Though improbable, it could not be called impossible. So we consider one truth that Christ is pressing upon them. He's preparing them for His own resurrection. He's going to die. He's going to be in the grave three days. And it's not impossible. Not with God. What's impossible with men is possible with God. Also, the resurrection of Lazarus is often viewed as topological in salvation. 
miracles, we believe, are historical events. They really happened. They're truths. They're um, actual activities that Christ performed. He suspends the law of nature. A lot of times we refer to things as miracles that really aren't miracles. It's more of the providence of God. It's not a miracle. It's providence. A miracle is suspending natural law. Natural law is the dead do not come out. The dead stay dead. But Christ suspends that law. He doesn't simply suspend it. He overcomes it. And so, when we read about miracles, they're real. And at the same time, they're parables. They teach us truths. Um, and often, just about without exception, those parables have to do with salvation. How does salvation occur? Well, Lazarus was dead. And his body was undergoing what happens at death. From dust we are to dust we return. It's returning. Well, sinners are dead too. We don't just need a hand up. And a lot of times when people are considering Christianity, they, they think, I want to turn my life around. I need to do this. And you go, well, actually Christianity is not getting a hand up. Christianity is just not uh, God spanning the gap between what you can do and you can't do. The dead, spiritually dead, and that's the way we're described outside of Christ. Unbelievers are described as spiritually dead. They don't need a hand up. They need resurrecting. And you can hit them in the head, as it were, metaphorically with a life ring and bonk them in the head and say, grab it and you'll be saved. Well, the point is you can't grab it because you're dead. You need resurrecting. That's what the dead in Christ, that's what the spiritually dead need is resurrecting. And so when we look at this, and no human agency can do that, only a sovereign God can raise the dead. So when we look at Lazarus, it's part of the picture we see that here's a here's a sovereign work of God that mirrors for us what happens in redemption. And of course, in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus is a signal promise to all who believe in Christ, who are in Christ, that though he die, yet shall he live. And of course, we read the responses to this resurrection. Verse 45, some believe in Jesus. Verse 46, some reject Jesus. Verse 53, some plan to kill him. That's the response. And that's still the response. Some believe. Some are indifferent. And some just get angry. Well, what I want us to look at and what I'm really coming to this passage for is what we're about to get into now, I hope. And that is Jesus' response to the death of His friend. We mentioned earlier that death is no friend. It's more than an inconvenience. It is our greatest enemy. On one occasion, Martin Luther overheard some people seeking to domesticate death and transform it into a friend. And Luther said, 
I do not like to see people glad to die. I prefer to see them fear and tremble and turn pale before death, but nevertheless pass through it. Great saints do not like to die. The fear of death is natural, for death is a penalty. Therefore, it is something sad. According to the Spirit, one dies willingly, but according to the flesh, the saying applies, another will carry you where you do not wish to go. And that's what Christ told Peter, what would happen to him when he grew old. Dr. Sproul, the late Dr. Sproul, wrote, the value of life grows in magnitude when we stare death in the eye. Death is obscene, a grotesque contradiction to life. The contrast between the vibrancy of a child at play and the limp ragdoll look of a corpse is revolting. The cosmic art, the cosmetic art of the mortician cannot disguise the odious face of death. And too often, I've said this to you more than once, too often at funerals and other places, it's like we're here to have a party. And I go, no, we're not. Yes, I have hope. Yes, I, have, I can have joy because of who Christ is and, and who we can be in Christ, but this is my enemy. It's not my friend. And it's the last enemy that Christ will destroy. In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Revelation 20, 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. It's the last thing that one of the last things that Christ does in judgment. He casts them into hell. Enemy, this enemy death is a consequence of sin. That when sin has had its way, it's finished its work, it will rip the body from the soul. It will tear loved ones apart, even though we want to cling to each other, it rips us apart from our loved ones. It ends ministries. And without Christ. Death would usher the dead sinner into an eternal misery without Christ and the power of His resurrection. So John 11, verse 33, Jesus meets the enemy. And there's two very meaningful phrases that are used in verse 33. So look in your Bible, John 11, 33. Let's dig a little deeper. First, we're told that He is deeply moved. And secondly, we are told that He is greatly uh, troubled, that He's deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. Now, the word or phrase deeply moved means to snort with anger. The example of I've used with this, and I think, and this is where the word comes from, is nostril countenance. And you think of a stallion, a horse, and there's a threat, an enemy. And what does this, how does the stallion respond? Those ears go back, that nose flares, and it snorts. This is what this, this is where the word comes from. Christ is meeting the enemy. And it means to snort with anger, to exhibit irritation, to be moved with anger, to admonish sternly. 
So when we read here that Jesus is deeply moved, what we're reading is about an anger, an indignation in Christ. The second phrase, greatly troubled, Tarasso means to, quote, cause acute emotional distress or turbulence to cause great mental distress. And so in His Spirit, Christ, there is this indignation. There is this turmoil. It's just boiling up in Him. It's like rolling water. This is how He's responding to this enemy. A.W. Pink writes that Christ was distressed to the extremest degree, moved to a holy indignation and sorrow at the terrific brood which sin had borne. When he looked at the broken world, his heart was grieved because he knew at the root of the brokenness was sin. And here is... The end of sin when it brings forth its fruit is death. And Christ has an indignation. And His Spirit is just troubled within Him. I want to read one another quote. It's by B.B. Warfield. This is from an essay on the emotional life of our Lord. And Warfield writes, What John tells us in point of fact, is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but irrepressible anger. He did not respond to the spectacle of human sorrow with, with quiet, sympathetic tears. He did, excuse me. He did respond with quiet, sympathetic tears. John 11.35, Jesus wept. But the emotion which tore His breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. A just rage. Jesus raged within Himself. The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny, as Calvin phrases it. So why is Jesus angry? Is it because Martha and Mary have said to Him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died? Is it because they're crying? Actually, the word there means wailing. Is it because they're crying? They're, they're overcome with sadness and their emotion? No. Jesus Himself will cry. He cries. Hendrickson says, but why was he angry? Certainly not because Mary and the Jews were weeping. Why then? Jesus was concentrating his attention upon sin as the underlying cause of all suffering, all grief, and all sorrow. He was filled with indignation against sin. But we also notice that Jesus is sympathetic. Against the enemy, He's indignant with His people. He's moved with compassion. For when He sees their weeping, Mary and Martha, Jesus wept. 
Now this is different than the verb that's used in verse 31 and 33. This is the only place in the New Testament this verb is used actually. Describe Jesus' weeping. John eleven thirty five. And again, Hendrickson writes, it's pure and holy, sympathizing, high priest. They proceeded from the most genuine love. That proceeded from the most genuine love for man found in the entire universe. The love which gave itself. We sing it sometimes in that great hymn. The great physician now is near. The sympathizing Jesus. He speaks the drooping heart to cheer. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. So let me close with some words of hope of encouragement, admonition, expectation. When we hear what is often referred to as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel message, Genesis 3.15, I want you to have this, I want you to come, I want you to think of this Jesus in John 11.35. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent, representing Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, Satan, shall bruise... Excuse me, I got it wrong. He, the the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, speaking to Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. Christ is bruised in death physically and spiritually and emotionally. Hear the words of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 11. Out of the anguish of His soul, out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. When you hear these words read at a funeral from 1 Thessalonians 4, think of John 11. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. And I think that cry of command is very much like the one we read in John 11. Lazarus, come forth. There's a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And when I come to die, if I have... Time to think if I'm knowing, may I say with the psalmist, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, a rod used to defend the sheep, to beat off the predators, and the staff to gather them in, to bring them to safety. Your rod and your staff are with me. In John 11, 30, uh, John 11, there's rod and staff. He sees the enemy and he responds. He responds in indignation to the enemy 
And he responds with great sympathy to the believer. Oh, unbeliever, if there's any unbeliever here, the skeptic, the ungodly, focus on this Jesus. It's not the sweet, timid little lamb before whom we stand. It is the mighty God who is angry at sin. And when he met the enemy, he flashed with indignation. When you go before God, does he welcome you? Are you welcomed as a child? Or is there indignation? Is there enmity, hatred, and war? Well, if that be the case, we call upon you to look to the Lord. Repent of your sins and ask Him for His forgiveness. For He alone has the words of life. I close with these words of our Lord King Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's pray together. Father, we look to you to do that which no man can do, and that is take your word, make it real in our hearts and minds. Grant us the gift of faith that we may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For your people, we pray, Lord, that you will encourage them, that you will fill them with your spirit, that you will draw near to them. Give them a blessed day, Lord, as we reflect upon who you are, our great Savior and our great King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn will be from the Hymns of Grace, uh, which is the larger black hymnal in your seats. And we want to stand together and sing hymn number 177 in Christ alone.